I guess we'll get started. Let me open this up in prayer, and then we will begin. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, Lord, for who you are, Lord, and what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we have through Christ, Lord. And I thank you for just this semester that we're able to spend um, looking at the history of your church, Lord, and your work of redemption and how you have um, been working through your people, Lord, for for centuries, Lord. We thank you for um, just your goodness and that we get to be a part of this redemptive story, Lord, and that you are still working today the same way you have been working for the last, um, oh, really since the beginning of time, Lord. We love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so tonight is the last official night for the Growth Institute. Um, I believe next week we'll still be meeting, uh, have like a potluck thing. I don't know all the details really for that. And then two weeks out, we will have a special uh, discussion with Jason, Sam, and I and transgenderism. So that's then two weeks out. And then after that, I think we should be done for uh, the semester for meeting on Wednesday nights for the summer, ultimately. Um, And then in the fall, we're starting a new topic on systematic theology. I think Jason might have mentioned it. I forget what it is off the top of my head right now. But So that's what it looks like going forward. So tonight, we're finishing up with the church. This is a topic that we've been talking about really from the very beginning, starting in the patristic era. And we've traced this topic, this uh, doctrine called ecclesiology, all the way through church history. And now we're looking at it specifically in the modern era. So I, I think it might have been fun if we had maybe set this up a little bit differently and just stuck with a certain doctrine and maybe gone through each era, one right after each other, and gone all the way up through the modern era and then maybe started back in the patristic era with a different doctrine or worked our way through um, just to see how it was developed. Um, but obviously we didn't do that and I think that's all right. But This is one of the topics that we have talked about in every single era so far. Um, So obviously the one right before this was the Reformation era, uh, when we talked about church history. And from the Reformation era, we started to see um, this doctrine, or the church really starting to splinter in many different ways, as many of the Reformers were starting to recover the doctrine of justification um, and starting to reform the church. And it, we saw it as a result, um, the church was starting to splinter into many different denominations. And so that's kind of where we're at today. We see many different denominational groups in the modern era with the church. Uh, and one of the big topics that um, have been talked about is, well, how do we unify together as the church with so many different denominational lines. So that's at least one vein that might be talked about a little bit more tonight. Um, but for another one, I, w- I want to start with this question that you have in the beginning of your note sheet. And just thinking about everything we've talked about so far, um, and also everything that's been talked about uh, specifically for the modern era, uh, 
that might help answer this question. How has the church been redefined or reshaped during this modern era? So I hope to try to answer this question as we go through this talk tonight. Uh, But what are some initial thoughts on this? Based on just things we've talked about so far in the modern era, um, or just on the doctrine of the church so far, are there any like initial thoughts or assumptions maybe on this question? Maybe not. So if you think back at the Reformation era, as I had mentioned, um, it was really from that time we see a lot of different denominational lines being formed, a lot of splintering happening there. And I think what we see during the modern era is there is a look maybe beyond the institutional church uh, to maybe help with evangelism and discipleship, uh, where there's maybe a less of a focus on the institutional church itself and more of a focus on the individual Christian. And maybe you'll see a little bit about a little more of that as we work through some of these things, especially with the Great Awakenings um, and so forth. Uh, so, some of these things we've already talked about. I know Pastor Jason talked about the Great Awakenings, uh, but we'll be talking about them again tonight. And again, we'll be mentioning many of these same individuals that we've already talked about. But hopefully, we'll do so more in vain of, our, of their ecclesiology, of their doctrine of the church. So we'll start with the historical overview. And a good place to start is the first Great Awakening. Who are some of the prominent figures in the First Great Awakening? Uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Who else? You could just be reading them George off. George Whitfield and John Wesley. Okay, yeah. So these are probably the three main um, individuals that people think of right away when we talk about the First Great Awakening. You could see approximately when it was, really starting in the 30s. Um, and it's hard to say exactly when it would end, uh, but you could see 30s to 70s there. Uh, yes, 1730s. Yes, exactly. 1730s, 1770s or so. Um, and what we see really coming out of, I think, the First Great Awakening, or really a push within the First Great Awakening, is an emphasis on individual conversion. Um, Obviously, throughout the history of the church, there's always been individualistic conversions. People come to faith as individuals, putting their faith in Christ. That's always been the way that people have been saved. Uh, But maybe before... um, this time, and it was starting to really come out during the Reformation era, I mean, you were just a part of the church. You'd be baptized into the church as a young child, and 
Lord willing, you will come to saving faith as in one point in life as you grow in, in maturity in Christ. Uh, but there wasn't as much of an emphasis on individual conversion. And so we see that happening more so, or that push more so within the first great awakening here. And so this reshaped the way people thought about the church in many ways. Um, some good ways and some bad ways. Um, and I think one of maybe the bad ways that this started to reshape the way people thought about the church is, again, just the individualistic nature of it. It's me and Jesus. One of the good ways this reemphasized is the fact that you as an individual need to come to know the Lord, right? So there's good things and bad things with a lot of these different um, movements and different ways that they're emphasized. But let's start with Jonathan Edwards here. Um, We're going to talk about his position on revival and what was happening within the First Great Awakening. Um, And so I got a lot of these points here from an article I read uh, called um, Jonathan Edwards and His Theology of the Revival. So I want us to work through these and say a couple things of Whitfield and Wesley as well. So uh, for Edwards, the source of revival is um, specifically in the context of the First Great Awakening as we were emphasizing, as the church was starting to emphasize more of this individual conversion, the source of the revival is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will. That's what you would write um, in the line here. So Edwards, I think, rightly articulated that ultimately it's God's sovereign will that is in charge of all things. And he is the one that will bring a revival or not bring a revival. It's ultimately uh, on God to make it happen. And then second point here, the intention of of revival is what so what's the purpose of this um for edwards he would say it's the glorification of god it's for the glory of the lord and so maybe some of these answers might sound familiar i think this is how our church would at least teach and articulate many of these things um the objective of revival what would you guys think could be for this one. What's the objective? What's the reason why we would have revival? What was that? Conversion. Conversion. Yep. Uh, to change human nature. To convert. Yep. Conversion actually have an, as an answer for a different one. So, I mean, it, it, it's really the same. But I had the objective to, of revival is to change human nature, but really that ultimately is from conversion. Uh, the first step of the sinner is in this changed nature. What do you guys think? Repentance. Repentance. But specifically a word that um, Edwards would use as it relates specifically to the first great awakening is the sinner needs to be Awaken is um, awakened. The first step of the sinner is to be awakened. Uh, 
And specifically, when he mean, says that, he's referring to their mind being renewed for them to recognize that they are sinners. So we need to be awakened. We need to be revived in order to recognize our sinfulness. Right? And then the transformation brought by revival is conversion. So that's where the conversion bit there is for Edwards. Um, so let's just describe this whole transformation here. And then the effect of the revival is... What's the ultimate effect? What do you guys think? At least how Edwards would describe it. If you know the five points of Calvinism, it would be the last point. Perseverance of the saints. So the effect of revival, according to Edwards here, would be uh, the perseverance of a believer to the end. That it sticks. That this isn't just um, something that happens in one season in your life and then ultimately has no ultimate um, change, but it is something that lasts for you as a believer if it is a true, authentic conversion. So again, the emphasis here, as it relates specifically to the local church or just maybe the universal church, is a new emphasis on individual conversion. Um, and we see this played out in a believer's life, ultimately, that it will be carried out all the way to the end of their life. All right, George Whitfield. if you guys remember anything that Pastor Jason said about him, what, what is he known for? He's preaching. Yeah, I mean, most people heard him preach, right, when he was preaching. Uh, he um, started, really, a new style of, of preaching, in a way. Um, do you guys know what that is? New, I don't know if style is the right word. Um, what about his preaching? did he kind of start? You guys remember? Was he the one that, that uh, you know, preached the hell or was that and, and the reason he needed not to go there? Or Are you not, uh, was he the hell and, hell and brimstone kind of guy? I think that was Edwards, actually. And, yeah. What was that back there? Was it... Did more preaching outside of the church? Yes, outside of the church. Open-air preaching, specifically. That's really what I was looking for. Open-air preaching. Meaning, he went to where the people were, who were working out in the fields, the miners, all those individuals who weren't able to come into a church building because they were working. So, uh, George Whitfield recognized that this was an issue, and so he brought the preaching to them. Again, I mean, that's a really wonderful thing to do, right? Going out, sharing the gospel with those who aren't able to come into the church building. But with this, I want us to see there's kind of a shift happening in the way we think of church, right? It's not so much of this institutional structure. I mean, it, it is, 
But now there's more of an emphasis. Well, it's more individualistic. It's more maybe outside of the walls of a building. Um, and, and so church began to be seen as something that could be done well or evangelism and discipleship could be done well outside of a context of a local church. Um, so we see good things coming from this. Many people coming to salvation. But then when, it's, when we see it being carried out as we continue with this, we see less and less of an emphasis on a local church. Um, and then John Wesley, what's he known for? What was that? Methodism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Whitfield is as well, right? Uh, but more so specifically, Wesley is a bigger name with that. Um, and again, this whole First Great Awakening started to shift the emphasis on individual salvation and started to move evangelism, discipleship outside of the local church. So we see good things come from the Great Awakening. Many people coming to salvation. But we see less of an emphasis on the need of a local church. And so we see some negative outcomes uh, from this. Um, now we're here with the, the mission of the church. Let's talk about that. And specifically, right after the First Great Awakening, we have this emphasized to go out, to preach the gospel, as George Whitfield and John Wesley were doing, right? Jonathan Edwards, as they were doing, to go out and preach the gospel, to share the gospel with many others who aren't inside the walls of the church. And so then this, we have a little bit more of an emphasis on the modern mission movement. Um, Adoniram Judson, he was actually the first uh, American missionary who was sent um, not to Native American tribes overseas. And I believe Adoniram Judson was commissioned in 1812. So that's a little bit after William Carey here. But William Carey we'll talk about specifically because he's known as the father of modern missions. Um, has mo- Who's heard of William Carey? Most people probably. Yeah. So you can see the dates when he lived here. He was before Adoniram Judson. I wanted to mention Adoniram Judson just because he was on the American side. Um, Carey was over England. But he wrote, William Carey, uh, a book, and you could see the title of it here, and it was published in 1791, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, not the Heaven. So there's a typo there. (laughs) Conversion of the Heathen. Yes, not Heaven. Um, so just correct that. But yeah, that came out in uh, 1791. And this, with William Carey, uh, started the particular Baptist Missionary Society where he was sent out to uh, India to share the gospel. Um, and so again, we see great things coming out from this time period where there's a re-emphasis, 
re-emphasis um, to go out and share the gospel. Because prior to this time, many Christians weren't even sure if the Great Commission, what we see at the end of Matthew, was actually meant for the entire church. Many people would articulate that that was something given for the disciples specifically, but weren't necessarily sure if that was something that was really needed um, for them during their time. So William Carey reemphasized the fact that, no, actually, this is something that we all need to partake in and all need to uh, be involved in. And so he, he wrote that uh, there, and I encourage you all to read it. If you want to read it, I have a copy of it in my office. So uh, You can see, here's just a quote from it. Does anyone want to read this uh, short paragraph for us? All right, thanks, John. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a little before his departure, commissioned his disciples to go and teach all nations, or as another evangelist expresses it, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This commission was an ex- was as extensive as possible and laid them under obligation to disperse themselves into every country of the habitable globe and preach to all the inhabitants without exception or limitation. So we see this paragraph mentioned near the beginning of this inquiry of his emphasis really just this is for us all. It wasn't just for the disciples. And so that's really how he begins Uh, this pamphlet that he publishes. And then as uh, he makes this argument, he then gives like a short survey of the missionary work that has been done in different parts of the world. Um, And so it's a a lot of research he put into that. um, And it really um, encouraged many people to go out and do missions. Um, So we see this happening Within the modern era, a re-emphasis on the very purpose um, or job of of the church. The mission of the church is to go out and share the gospel and uh, bring people to saving faith. All right. So now as people are focusing not just within the walls of the church, they're looking outwards, right, to bring more people in. And then now we have what's known as the Second Great Awakening. I know this was also mentioned, um, talked about already in the modern era. Charles Finney is probably the most popular person uh, as it comes to this uh, specific movement, the Second Great Awakening. Does anyone remember anything that Pastor Jason said um, that's attributed to Finney during this time? Scheduled revival. (laughs) Scheduled revival, exactly. How can you schedule a revival? Get everybody up on that first pew. (laughs) Get everyone up on that first pew, right? Do the altar calls, and then um, everyone on the first pew, wasn't it the anxious seat is what we had talked about? Um, And it was a formula to it. Would Jonathan Edwards agree with Finney here? No, he wouldn't, right? He would say, ultimately, we can't... um, schedule this is this something that ultimately has to be uh, up to God and his sovereign will there. So we see um, different ways people articulated this. Um, so I have a question here for you guys then here, 
here. How can the emphasis of evangelism and revival shift the nature of a worship service? So when you think, when I say worship service, I'm referring to when the church gathers, like what we do on Sunday mornings, um, from the first great awakening, starting to look at the individual conversion of people, and rightly so, I don't, I'm not trying to criticize that by any means. That's a good thing, right? And then looking out to do missions. Now we have here with Finney and really emphasizing altar calls. So with this new emphasis in the modern era, how can this new emphasis on evangelism and revival shift the nature of our worship services? What do you guys think? I must, uh, one of the things I think would be obvious that, that there's target, tar, the worship service isn't for believers, it's trying to make believers. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. It's very much outward focus. I mean, just we just mentioned how it was with Finney, right? And it was becoming more popular during this time with the Second Great Awakening, um, where we would say, the church service is the gather, for the gathered believers to worship the Lord. But this is where we see more of an emphasis, as you said, Lonnie, uh, to bring more people in and be more of an outreach. Give your hand up. I've already kind of been covering this. One's more concerned with a convergent moment, and one's more concerned with lifelong sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, good thing to point out as well. On emotion and like the person's experience versus maybe just the preaching of the word. Yeah, yeah. And so that was a big concern for many Christians during this time. Um, There's just a lot of emotion happening. So how are we supposed to encourage right emotion uh, but not... um, let it go wild without any type of control, right? <laughs> yeah. So my question is then for you guys is how are we supposed to think of this for us in our context? What, where does emotion fit in? Is emotion a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Heart, you tend to typically get a stronger reaction or, or effect than if you just get them with logic. Okay. And so so there, is, there is some truth to the, the motion thing, but the problem is when the mo- emotions aren't there, sometimes you, you have that roller coaster where you know, you're used to the emotion and then if you don't have it, then, you, then you don't, you know, you're looking for the next high or the mm-hmm. next part of it. And that's where it could be very unhelpful, right? Because you just think, well, the whole Christian life is based on this high. And if I'm not feeling this emotional high, spiritual high, then is God actually with me? Right? David was confronted and he was told the story about the, the man and his sheep, one sheep and that, you know, the neighbor who had taken his one sheep, you know, he was tugging at the emotions of David. Mm-hmm. And then and then when he realized that man was him, he was really impacted, mm-hmm. you know, so there is a, some benefit to, you know, to, you know, telling that story with, uh, you know, that gets to the emotion. But yeah. 
but if if that's all you're living for, it won't work. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we need to be um, preaching the gospel in a way that gets to the heart, right? So people can experientially um, have a communion with God, right? And so, what are some other thoughts on this? How are we? How can we properly share the gospel? So it's not just purely emotional, but yet having emotion still in there in its proper place. The Holy Spirit is very involved in this. So it's hard to talk about emotion without that. But when emotion comes before that, it gets a little dicey. (laughs) But when the Holy Spirit acts... Like, I think our proper response would be one of desiring to worship, and that can involve emotions. Yeah, yeah. Because it is such a heart change. Yeah. But you can't have a heart change without the Holy Spirit, so. Yeah. So we need definitely the Holy Spirit to be working in us. And when I say emotion here, I'm, I'm kind of referring to like a heartfelt, affectionate response to the Lord. And I think response is a key term there, right? It's our emotion uh, towards the Lord needs to be a response. It's not something that initiates our worship. It's guided and directed, first and foremost, from the revelation of God found in His Word. Uh, And so for us as believers, we ought to have an emotional response uh, towards the Lord, a heartfelt, affectionate response. It doesn't mean we always will, right? Um, But we we should. But it needs to be guided and directed by the Word of God. It needs to be guided and directed by our confession of who God is. So we believe God is all of these things. We could go through... Uh, core doctrines, that he is the triune God, that he, Christ is the God-man who came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. We, we ought to confess these things, preach these things, and then our emotion, our affections, ought to then be a response to those things. So it never begins worship. It's always a response. Um, and so that would be maybe some of the pushback that, um, other preachers probably would have had during some of these great awakenings where there might have been a little bit more of an emphasis on this emotional response that wasn't necessarily always guided by sound doctrine. So, so we have there the second great awakening. Uh, and then as a response to that, then we have what is sometimes called the rest, uh, restorationism. Um, a response to the Second Great Awakening. Um, And so this tried to give some helpful uh, definition and direction to the many people coming to Saving Faith. Because, again, remember, many people are coming to Saving Faith. A lot of times it's now open-air preaching. Um, It's a lot not necessarily based on court doctrines and confessions, but on emotional response to God. So then where do these 
Now, how, how are you supposed to guide and direct these people if it's not first founded within a, a local church with certain set of confessions? Right? How, how do you organize these people in a way uh, for them to worship God well as Christians? And so that's the response that some of these individuals have. You can see, um, does anyone want to read this paragraph here? This is just pretty informational. Uh, with, starting with Alexander Campbell. Someone read that for us. Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, and Barton Stone formed a denomination called the Disciples of Christ. This group attempted to displace denominational divides with an emphasis on Christian unity based on New Testament teaching, leaving creeds and confessions aside. They rejected the lengthy, overly emotional conversion narratives of the awakening and opted for a straightforward soteriology they deemed understandable. So soteriology referring to the doctrine of salvation. How is someone saved? Um, so we see groups now starting to get formed out of the Great Awakenings that were trying, they were thinking, how can we unify us as Christians in a way um, where we could all come together and have some type of, of identity here as believers? And so that's why this first group um, didn't emphasize creeds and confessions because they thought that divided the church too much. And so they were really trying to get back at, well, what does Scripture say what, based on the New Testament alone? Um, and looking at this unity here. Uh, and, and so we have that group, but then we also have this individual named James uh, Graves. He was a Baptist, so this is a Baptist response. Uh, he rejected the idea of a universal church and argued that the Baptist churches alone was the true church and would mark their heritage dating back to the first century. So even though this guy is a Baptist, this James guy, I wouldn't necessarily um, agree with him here. <laughs> but here he is trying uh, to say, well, a lot of what's happening within the Great Awakenings isn't true and authentic unless you're Baptist. Um, and he would, like I said, argue and suggest that the Baptist church alone is where the real church is taught, or is found, I should say. Uh, he taught that Baptists should recover key marks, uh, such as restricting the Lord's Supper to members of a specific church only, and reject any form of baptism um, that was not immersion, specifically within the Baptist church. Uh, and so you have people like this uh, who are a lot more strict responding to these great awakenings. So this, these are just some ways individuals were responding to these masses of people coming to faith in Christ. Whether it was authentic um, or an emotional high in a moment. Um, I mean, I do believe, of course, that many people did authentically come to know the Lord in these great awakenings, for sure, 100%. Um, but you could just see here how some individuals were thinking through this at the time and responding to it. All right. We have 15 more minutes. All right. So in the midst of all of this, Great Awakenings, uh, the mission movement. 
the responses, people's responses to it. A major theological debate that really started during this time that had to do specifically on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, which is what we're talking about, is covenant theology versus dispensationalism. Has anyone heard of these terms before? Yeah. So this is a big discussion because you could see dispensationalism emerged from the writings of, you have Darby, you have Schofield, you have Schaefer here. Um, And dispensationalisms are based on how these three individuals articulated it, um, is that there is a distinction between the Old Testament Israel nation with the New Testament church today. So this theological debate and discussion was really trying to get to the heart of who is the church. And you can understand why they were having this discussion at this time in the midst of everything we've already talked about. Right? So the question is, who is the church? Um, and the dispensational camp here would argue, well, the church is ultimately and only the uh, New Testament believers. And on the covenant theology side, which came maybe a little bit before dispensationalism would argue, well, the church really encompasses all of God's people. It encompasses all of God's people, meaning it started really um, in the very beginning, um, right after the fall, where you see uh, God starting his plan of redemption all the way back in the book of Genesis to redeem a people for him, beginning with the Jews and then going out to the Gentiles. And so the covenant theology group would really look at that as encompassing the entire church. And the dispensationalists would say, well, actually, it's only started at Pentecost in the New Testament. Uh, And so that's just briefly a lot of the discussion. Um, There's a whole lot more to it, but we, of course, don't have time to go in there. Uh, For those who have studied this topic, covenant theology versus dispensationalism, does anyone want to add... um, Anything. Doesn't dispensationalism go much further into much more? I mean, the church didn't exist, at least it was not called the church, and, and, the, and that, but it's there's a dis, there's it's also there's a different dispensation for the different time periods. There's a different way to Christ mm-hmm. in, depending on the period. Sure. And, and that that's what I think separated dispensationalism. It wasn't that they what they called the church, because that seems kind of minutia. Uh, but, uh, hey, you know, the way to get to Christ, you know, if you if you take a dispensation is different versus, you know, it was faith throughout all times. And it was either faith that Christ is coming or Christ has come. I think that's definitely fair. If you look at the Schofield Study Bible, I believe it's divided up into seven specific, seven or nine, seven specific dispensations of time um, where God works in a distinct way in each of those seven uh, dispensations of time. If you're looking at the nation of Israel and the church of the New Testament specifically, 
they would say that there are different histories, really, um, different covenants that go with them, and so then really different um, ultimate outcomes that were um, for them. And so there's a big divide there. And then the covenant theology side of things would say, well, actually, this book is a unified book, and it actually goes together. Um, And so there's a lot of nuance in it, of course. And um, it's a big topic to study, and it really is a hermeneutical discussion. And when I say hermeneutical discussion, I'm referring to how you interpret the Bible. Covenant theology versus dispensationalism um, greatly does influence influence the way you understand Scripture. Because it's a framework, really, in order to uh, interpret it. But I at least had to give some um, mention to this, since this is probably the major um, theological debate, specifically, that re- uh, deals with ecclesiology. The doctrine of the church. And it also does talk, uh, deal specifically with the end times as well. So, um, our eschatology. But, any other just brief comments on that? And I know, if you didn't know these terms before, you're probably more confused now from it because it's uh, a big can of worms, really, and you would really need a lot of time just to spend on this to tr- start to make sense of it. But I at least want you to be aware of this discussion all right no no other comments on this 10 minutes we have plenty of time uh as time continued then right we have the great awakenings um and you have people's response to them remember the emphasis is starting to become more individualistic um in a good way, that's emphasizing individual conversion. In a bad way, that becomes more of a theology of just me and Jesus. There's not as much accountability in there. Um, they're starting to look outside the church walls to do missions, to share the gospel, which is a good thing. But now we have uh, discussions on uh, church growth. How do you grow a church? Um, and that's that's a good thing to talk about, right? You want to grow the church and you want to bring people into it. Um, and this is really, as I said here, a methodological movement. This isn't a movement that begins um, on theological conviction. It's more of just a method, a movement on method. And how do we start to grow our churches? Um, and you can see this guy here, at least in the... Um, the historical theology for the church book that we've been working through suggests that this movement really came from his teachings. Uh, and you can see some of the books he wrote. And you can see it, he wrote them in the 70s. Um, Understanding Church Growth and 10 Steps for Church Growth here. Um, from this writing, from his writings, the movement really began just how do we um, help a church grow well? Um, what do you guys think some of his suggestions were? How do we grow a church? Or if you know, you could say what his suggestions were. Otherwise, what would you think 
is a good way to grow a church that he might? Witnessing. Witnessing, okay. That should be very foundational, sharing the gospel. Some sort of outreach. Some sort of outreach, okay. We're specifically talking about, at least what he's talking about, how do we get the people, more people in your pews on Sunday morning to make your church grow? Fireworks. Fireworks. Put on a show. (laughs) Yeah. right is incredibly important and inviting people to church is incredibly important and just being a good example for christ right is incredibly important uh but specifically what this individual um wrote about and really started uh when it came to this specific method for church growth is he would suggest that wherever your church is located you need to know what kind of people are there? Um, and cater specifically to that kind of people and their needs um, and their likes and their desires. So really looking at the socioeconomic um, structure uh, of that specific area, wherever you want to plant a church wherever your current church is located and cater specifically to that type of person. So it's, in a sense, starting to brand a church specifically to a certain type of people. Um, And this is really what started um, this movement, the church growth movement. And, I mean, if you just think of it, I mean, we don't even need to get into the point if if it's healthy or not, but... It's a nice social group for people who are just like you. So why wouldn't you go, right? Um, I hope and that we all could see that that's not necessarily a healthy way uh, to plant churches or to conduct a church just to cater to one type of person um, and what their desires would be. But that's really what came out of a lot of his writings and a lot of individuals, a lot of churches, some of the earliest known mega churches really adopted this model. Um, so we have today Saddleback Church uh, with Rick Warren. He adopted this model as well. Uh, we have Willow Creek Church also had adopted a model like this. Um, and And so... This was starting to become more popular, and it was seen as a good thing because more people are starting to come to church, and our church is growing. Um, 
And, and so then, kind of in a response to this, there's another movement that started to emerge, the emerging church. Has anyone heard of this before, the emerging church movement? Yeah. Honestly, um, I think this is one of the hardest movements to try to f- actually understand and get a grip on. I, I feel like I read a lot more even just today to like help myself remember what what's going on here, and it's still difficult um, because it's so vast and diverse, specifically with the emerging church movement. Uh, but most places with articles you might read, books you might read, would say this was a response to though the church growth movement, uh, because with the church growth movement, you you see churches that became very professional, uh, very run by programs, and they had everything for every one or that specific type of person that you're trying to cater towards, right? And then you have the emerging church kind of like recognizing, oh, that seems very um, un- unauthentic, authentic. And so you have the emerging church trying to develop more of an authentic approach uh, to church. And so it's more on one-in-one life together um, type of understanding of things. And so, but the emergent church movement um, became... Uh, dangerous, though, as well, because there was a lack of emphasis on, again, sound doctrine and um, just our confessions. What do we believe about God? Um, If you read the literature on the emerging church, some individuals put a distinction between the emerging church and the emergent church. Uh, The emerging church... Um, if you know Mark Driscoll, um, back in the day, he had a big voice on this before everything with him blew up, if you know anything about him. Um, but he would say the emerging church uh, would try to cater towards those who are living in, in a postmodern world um, for them to see Christ as they're living in a postmodern world, but would still emphasize core doctrine. But the emergent church would put doctrine off to the side. And so there was a big danger there. Doctrinal confessions were not um, a big emphasis at all. And so then we have individuals or different groups responding to the emergent church. Uh, Again, because it really is around how do we as Christians unite, even though there are so many denominational lines, and that's really what the emergent church was trying to, to do in catering to the postmodern person, um, but trying to figure out how to unite, how to be authentically Christian. Uh, but we have conservative groups coming out and responding to, in a way, the emergent church movement, such as T4G, if you've heard of T4G, Together for the Gospel or the Gospel Coalition as well, uh, where these uh, parachurch organizations are starting to try to say, well, we need to unite around the core doctrines of our faith, the gospel, who God is, what is, um, how do we come to saving faith? 
Um, and we could disagree, agree to disagree on our secondary matters, but we could still come around these core doctrines. And so we have um, different parachurch organizations like those, T4G and Gospel Coalition, um, who try to find the unified, how to work together as a unified universal church while still um, holding on to core distinctions and with different denominational lines. So I know there's a lot there. Uh, and because the emerging church is kind of a complex movement, and I honestly feel like I don't have a, a great grasp on it myself, that's why I gave you a short article attached to the back of your note sheet so you could read more on that if you wanted to. The Emerging Church Primer. That's what they called it from Nine Marks. So it would be a great resource if you desire to just understand that a little bit more. So, all right. Any questions for tonight? I know it was a quick survey through a lot of things here. But hopefully, since we've talked about many of these individuals already, this, since this, this won't be your first time working through it, so it might be a little bit easier to remember some of these individuals. Any final comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, maybe one area that maybe we covered, I forgot, I know, more recent, like, health and wealth gospel or prosperity gospel mm-hmm. or, like, the ones that are maybe kind of more right now, although they probably go back way further than I think. Mm-hmm. Like, what would that kind of, how would we classify that? Like, in which era or what era or which, like... Modern era. Um, but I would say those probably came out of a lot of Pentecostal, charismatic type of uh, of movements, I, I think. And we could have talked about that more as well, but we didn't. <laughs> but I, I would say maybe we find a lot of those roots, though, in more of a charismatic type of uh, movement. So, And yeah, those are dangerous, 100%, right? Uh, they have a complete um, false understanding of what the gospel is. Um, the gospel is um, to transform a sinner into someone who is saved by Christ, right? Into a, a child of God. Um, it's not social transformation um, in this world, and it, and it doesn't necessarily give you wealth here in this world either. Any other final questions or comments? All right, well, let me close out in prayer. And then be sad because this is the last teaching on this until we start up again next semester. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, we thank you for... Um, the gift of your son, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word, Lord, and how you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, in the scripture. Lord, I pray that we will regularly look to your scripture, Lord, so that we can know you and respond to you appropriately, Lord, affectionately in worship. 
Lord, we thank you that you have told us um, what a church should look like in your word. And I thank you that we are able to uh, be your body, Lord, be your hands and feet in this world. Lord, as we represent you, Lord, as your body, as your church, Lord, I pray that is something that we're able to do well here at First Baptist Church, Lord, of Springfield. Lord, just continue to grow us, make us more um, like your son, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.